Welcome to the KBB Review Podcast. This is episode 37 and as always I'm your host Andy Davis. It's a special episode this week as I'm actually taking a couple of weeks break from the podcast while I catch up with lots of other work that has backed up to an embarrassing level. So I'm going to run a couple of interviews that originally appeared on our other show, the Kitchen and Bathroom Design Podcast, to keep your lust for all things KBB going. We're going to start with our KBB Review Special Achievement Award winner for 2020, Adam Thomas. He's simply the go-to guy for designing what have become known as accessible kitchens for many years. A wheelchair user himself, he has a level of empathy and understanding of what that market needs and has been an advocate of design that can be used by everyone regardless of their abilities. He's a fascinating guy and his dedication to his craft comes through very clearly in this conversation but it's driven by such a sense of injustice and frustration at the level of design understanding that is available to disabled people. I went to meet him early this year, before lockdown of course, in his beautiful house in Buckinghamshire. Remember that you can subscribe to this podcast using a podcast app such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, by searching KBB Review, all one word. And there you can see all the previous episodes, subscribe so you don't miss new ones, and leave us a very flattering review. Thank you very much. But for now, I'll hand over to me in conversation with Adam Thomas. Well, Adam, thank you very much for inviting us to your beautiful home here today. It's a, it's a gorgeous place. It's the first one we've done actually in someone's house. Oh, is it? Which is quite exciting. So we are here, so we'll get Excellent. you to talk us around your actual kitchen in a minute. Yeah. But I want to start off by understanding how you define what it is you're an expert in. Because language and nomenclature are so important in this mm-hmm. area. So what, how do you describe what your expertise is? My expertise in the way my goal is to keep people independent and keep people in their own homes for as long as possible. Right. I've experienced for quite long periods of my time not being able to do simple tasks and finding it incredibly infuriating. Can you imagine uh, not being able to make a cup of tea for yourself, having to ask somebody to get, get you something out of a cupboard, get you something out of a drawer, reach for something when you know you're capable of doing it What's the label you put on this? I mean, accessible design is the, is the for, commonly used yes, one. Yeah, for years it was called accessible design, and I specialised in accessible design. More recently, I'm, I like to think I'm one of the founding members of what's called a multi-generational movement, mm. which is a new way of looking at design. Uh, accessible design really was you have a standard house which isn't accessible, somebody becomes a disabled person moves into a property who's a disabled person and it has to be made accessible so you rip out everything and start again the multi-generational movement the multi-generational philosophy is more if, if you can if you can design a property correctly in the first place one it shouldn't cost a penny more from design concept we're not asking for more space or anything particularly good design you don't need that mm. But if you design it at the design and build stage, then you can be born in that house, live in that house and die in that house. And it should suit your various different needs. So, for instance, you could design a room that was starts off as a study, but then be, could be turned into a nursery. So it, it's rooms taking on different lives and uh, concepts, really. We'll touch on again about what you're currently working on, but I want us to go back a bit in, in, in your sort of professional design journey. Where did you actually start as a designer? I didn't get a lot of qualifications. I, I, was, uh, I left school at 15 with O-level art and technical drawing. I was very lucky. I went to a very good uh, secondary modern school that really pushed art and sport, mm. which I was good at at the time. I actually wanted to be a children's book illustrator. 
I was working on a friend's farm at the time doing calf rearing. I was on the dole and I was just really just helping out on a friend's farm. I was doing hay baling for a while mm. or, you know, I'd go and feed the cows and the rest of the time I'd just be sort of drawing. And the first two jobs was nothing to do with a children's book illustrator. <laughs> and guess what the third job was for? A kitchen, a kitchen designer. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how old were you then? I was just 16. Right, okay. And I turned up on my motorbike without, with very long hair and yeah. no portfolio. And this incredible person asked me to, gave me a picture of a plan, said, draw what you think it looked like in 3D. And because I was an artist in a way, yeah. I drew what I thought it looked like. And amazingly, he offered me a job. And I've worked with him for the ne- next 39 years. Wow. So th- there wasn't a, a furniture background even? or Because you know, that's how a lot no. of people get into this. Is, no, I, I literally, I had, I had a good eye, eye for design at school. Mm. I was good at technical drawing. I enjoyed those sorts of lessons at design, and that was it, really. Mm. I'm very heavily dyslexic. Um, I have a brain that doesn't work exactly the same way as a lot of people's, mm. but I can visualise, you show me an architect's plan of everything, and I can instantly walk around it in my head, and yeah. I could do that from the age of 15, well, earlier than that. So, so back then, I guess, you were designing pretty, st- I mean, quote-unquote, standard kitchens. Yes, yes. Very modular standard kitchens. I worked for, Yes, I worked for a company called Design Matters, mm. which became part of Humphersons for a while, uh, that was selling somatic, and that's, that's what I cut my teeth on. I'm very lucky. I mean, I grew up sort of with the somatic family for many years, mm. uh, and then we went independent. And then only a year and a half into my career... I had a motorbike smash, uh, got a punch from my back tyre going around a bend and snapped my back and, again, had the most incredible employer that would even consider employing a disabled person back mm. in 1981 and he made his showroom fully accessible uh, for me and, in a way, you know, we, we carried on working together ever since. But for the next 12 years, we, we d- I didn't get into accessible design even in those stages. It was more because... After about 12 years into my injury, I was getting more and more political and more and more cross with society that you couldn't do anything. And back in the early 90s, a disabled person had no basic human rights in this country at all. A disabled person had no rights to an education. They had no rights to transport. They had no rights to insurance, which meant you couldn't drive. No right to a public building. So I wasn't legally allowed to go to a cinema. I could be asked to leave on the grounds that I was a fire hazard. I could go to a restaurant. That's unbelievable to hear now. It is. It is. is. I I meet disabled kids now who were born after this age and they weren't even aware that... When I used to go and do talks at schools and I'd be talking about, can you imagine what it's like not to be allowed on a bus? And everyone would be thinking I'd be talking about apartheid. And Well, actually, it's this country and it's disabled people. Wow. Can you imagine now if you had a disabled child? Back in 1993, a school could just say no or a council could say, we're not going to educate your child. There is nowhere accessible... And there was no legal responsibility for a school or a council to educate a, chi- a disabled child. Even though you were very, you weren't a very long way into into the sort of kitchen design mm-hmm. career that you were having. You were, you suddenly had this, as you say, incredible empathy. I suppose. For, yeah, for, that's for, exactly for, it. For how yeah. how what what were very standard yeah. things, very standard modular things, simply didn't work in yeah. any. For the first seventeen years of my life, I had a. Ver- I'm, I'm I'm white. I had a very privileged middle class upbringing in the suburbs of. London, yeah, or commuter belt, whatever you call it, mm. yeah. And 
all of a sudden I went from that sort of almost expecting that, you know, I have a right to go travelling the world, I have a right to do this, I have a right to own a home, I have a right to do X. All of a sudden I'm being ignored, I can't do X, Y and Z, I can't get I drive a car because the car insurance is too expensive because you can't get car insurance. Yeah. And, yeah, I first discrimination on a daily basis and not only that, a patronising. And it was a real eye-opener for me. So, in a way, I mean... I would never go back. I, I love my life as it is. I love my life being a disabled person. It's enabled me to do so many things mm. that are not, I wouldn't have had a, ever had a chance to have done. But equally, it's, that's where I got my empathy from and my understanding of disability. And often when I'm being asked to look at a design that might not have worked so well for a disabled person, if I can actually get to speak to the designer in question... Some people wouldn't agree with this, but I actually, as, as soon as you actually get the designer to sit into a wheelchair and start actually yeah. trying to use the stuff, you actually yeah. start thinking, ah. Oh. And th- they often will have the light bulb moment. They yeah. suddenly realise why it's so important to set a worktop at a certain height. Or if you get this wrong by a little bit, it means you can't, you don't have the strength to cut or whatever on a worktop. So, so back in you know, the late 80s, early 90s here, what were you up against when it when it came to trying to put these kind of designs together? Because there can't have been even even back in those days, the, the, the breadth of modular options that are available now weren't available yeah. back then. You were very limited to what you could have yeah. even with a brand like Sematic or yeah. whoever else it was. So, how did you start? Sort of, you know, there's, there's, that must have been a very gradual change that you were trying to make with things. Well, it, well, I mean, Richard, who's the owner of Design Matters, who I was working with at the time allowed me to take a day off for a week voluntary work and I started working for a disability organisation which is where I was getting sort of more and more political and I ended up coordinating the civil rights campaign for disabled people and I did that for five years where uh, actually I met my wife handcuffed to a bus <laughs> and through that uh, and the campaigning work that I did I got involved with writing I was asked onto a subcommittee for writing a book Follow me on this one. Yeah, I'm with you. (laughs) I was asked to write a book on how to build an accessible house for the National Housing Federation, Mm. which is the governing body of housing associations at the time, in conjunction with the Joseph Roundtree Foundation. And I became very good friends with the CEO of the biggest housing association for wheelchair users called Habintag. And I spent a year and a half whinging about, this is terrible, I've done better designs for myself and my friends. And we were being taken around all these show houses around the north of London, all these new schemes. And... It was just the design, particularly in the kitchens and the bathroom, was appalling to the extent that they were putting in these new designs that disabled people, a wheelchair user, couldn't actually use. So he said, why don't you do something about it? So I went back to Richard, my old boss, and said, I want to set up a design service for older and disabled people. And it really went from there. And when we started looking into it very quickly, we realised with the manufacturers that we were using at the time, you couldn't adapt the standard furniture to make it accessible because everyone built to standard set sizes, mm. and no one is going to reset and jig machines. So we had to go out and find a, a manufacturers that were small enough uh, that could actually build one-offs at not expensive prices. Mm. And that, that was the trick. So to make a kitchen truly accessible, it virtually up until th- at that point, it had to be bespoke, which obviously came with a price tag to it. Because there's a double thing here, isn't there? One is the, I guess, the moral imperative that this stuff should be available to everybody. Of course it should. Which seems very clear now, but back then, I guess, the way you've described it, it wasn't necessarily. But also, you've got a business head on here that actually there's an opportunity here. There's a a market out there that is looking and demanding this stuff and no one's giving it to them and therefore there's a gap in the market. So did you have both 
you know, foot yes. in both camps there. I mean, I, I, I have absolutely no money out of making money out of my impairment and or disabled people, as long as it's done right. And that's the thing that really gets my goat. To, well, two things that get disabled people's goats is, one, as soon as anything is designed for a disabled person, it virtually doubles in price. Yeah. And two, the fact that it's actually still not very well designed or doesn't actually do the job it's been designed for. Uh, but if you can crack those two things, I have that. And disabled people don't mind paying a good price. Mm. But what they want is the same. They want to be able to go into a showroom and have the same understanding and knowledge and not have to start explaining or reinventing the wheel every time they ever speak to a non-disabled designer. Mm. And equally, what they want is the product to fit them. They don't want have to make their impairment, their body, fit the product. So you became, if you like, then the, the, the go-to guy in that area because it, no one else was yeah. really looking at it in any kind of, like I say, in an empathetic way. I, I guess at that time, a lot of the products that were available were from a kind of medical care point of yeah. view. Well, they the were, existing manufacturers were... Very clinical yeah, things. Yeah, well, yeah. they were the large manufacturers that mostly built either for social housing or new builds, mm. where, to be frank, not so much now, but certainly going back to those days... Uh, a developer, as long as they could tick boxes that it passed this regulation and that regulation, and it had this, that, and the other in it, they didn't actually care whether a disabled person, wheelchair user, could use it at all. But no one was building for the mass market. Still, I find it incredible that the kitchen industry really hasn't woken up to that there is this massive market out there. And it's because we still... It comes down to, the again, the social model of disability that I'm happy to go into at some yeah. point. But it's... In the industry, we still treat, we still look at disabled people as poor people, as people living on benefit, and that is such a small minority of disabled people. The majority of disabled people have been working all their life, are earning money, and or are getting compensation claims or whatever because they are getting injured through catastrophic injury. But but and disabled, and I guess, is such a broad catch-all term for hundreds of different things government statistics there are 13.8 million disabled people and that's conservative i would say when i had my injury at 17 out of 100 people i was the only disabled person i knew now i'm in my mid-50s the same 100 people about 30 of them yeah but it's reflected, I guess, in the society getting older and yes, people living exactly. longer and yes. that, you know, that kind of thing. Because I imagine a lot of people who are registered disabled yeah. are probably older, retired, have various different conditions that might yes. restrict their movement or restrict their sight or their hearing or whatever it, whatever it, whatever it may be. Yeah. And that's why designing for that market is not just about wheelchair users. It can be absolutely And, and that's the thing. So, and that's the beauty of multi-generational design mm. is that if you design a kitchen that even if it is absolutely perfect for that wheelchair user but or a visually impaired person or whoever it is, but then the rest of the family or the people using that kitchen can't use it, that mm. is not a good design kitchen. Mm. Multi-generational design kitchen is a kitchen that is designed that everyone can use. In the same way as that's what a multi-generational building is. But one of the problems has been then that there's labels attached to it. So I, you are either designing an accessible kitchen or you are not, as opposed yes. to just designing a well-designed yes. kitchen. I don't see why we have to have... If we're building a housing development, let's say, of 100 houses, why you would have 90 houses that a disabled person can't access and then 10 houses for argument's sake that they could, which is the system that we have at the moment. Why don't we just make all the houses accessible that anyone can use? I'm not saying we need to put rise and fall worktops into every one of those hundred houses, but there's lots of features that you can design. And with sort of good design concepts and things, you can actually design that only one section, if a wheelchair user moved in, that you would have to alter. I I guess this is where I I have to approach it slightly differently. 
for me, good design is good design mm-hmm. as opposed to a label on it. Any designer will sit down, one of the things that they do very well, particularly good independent ones, yeah. will sit down with any client and get to know them, understand what they want, what their needs are, what they do want, what they don't want. Yeah. And this is just that, isn't it? Isn't this just what they do anyway? They, but they need to expand their knowledge of what's available to satisfy that brief. Yes, but they, they also don't know which questions to ask. Right, okay. Uh, and, I, I mean, one client I was working with recently that was working with another company didn't even have the thought to ask him. Well, yes, they were designed because they, they, the person turned up using a wheelchair, mm. as a wheelchair user, and they didn't ask questions about, do you have any other related impairments or mm. do you have anything else? And in this case, they did. And they virtually by lunchtime were in so much pain they couldn't do X, Y, Z, or that their legs, yeah. by the afternoon, their legs swelled so much. So they designed a fixed worktop that they went in, they did one survey, measured the client's knee height once, and the client was saying, I want the worktops as near, which is correct, I want the worktops as near to my knees as possible, uh, which is what they did. So the client in the morning can get their legs under the worktop, right. but by the time their legs are swollen, they can't get their legs under the worktop. No one had even thought of that. Because I've been doing it so long, I'd automatically, you know... Obviously, you know, my brain thinks differently, yeah. uh, so I know what questions to ask. So now, I'm not saying it's rocket science, and I'm not saying only I or a disabled person can do it, far mm. from it. But, but I guess what it is, it's, it's about good designers constantly expanding their knowledge or their understanding of, of, of what clients they may encounter. Absolutely. A kind of continuous professional yeah. development that, that should yes. be a, a part of their I, I, Yes, which is what we're trying to do through the degree course. We'll touch on your yeah. work with all that yeah. in a minute, but I'm, I'm, I'm wondering... Because you work a lot with other designers, you work a lot with Symphony, for example, and you go yeah. around some of their dealers. I'm wondering how much there's a very sort of—is it a very British thing that not, as you say, not knowing what questions to ask, but being so afraid of saying the wrong thing, or using the wrong language? Or there is certainly that, and I, and equally, it is very important to use the right language with disabled people. Yeah. And again, if if I'm going into a shop, for instance, and someone immediately starts talking to my partner and or ignoring me or starts making a bit of a light joke about, oh, have you got reversing lights on that? That's enough for me to just walk out the showroom. It is totally. It's amazing how many people still do it because they feel uncomfortable with disabled people. It's fascinating. My wife lectures on on the Equality Act and goes around companies. And again, I won't mention names, but she went to a a national body of people in the medical profession. They were quite older people on the whole, and she was quite surprised how negative or backwards that they actually were in their opinions. And then three days later, she went to work for a sports company and had, I don't know, 150 people in this hall where she... And no one, she reckoned, was probably over the age of 25. And some of the questions, they were just looking at it like, why would you even be asking us this question? Mm. And it's because people of my age, I, I remember going to school and there wasn't one disabled person mm. in my school. Or if it was, they were bullied because they were a bit different. You know, I look at my daughter's school and there's lots of disabled kids there. So attitude is changing, society is changing, but I don't see our industry changing as quickly, to be honest. But I guess if you're going out and doing these sessions with these other designers, you are, if, if you like, giving them permission to ask you anything, aren't you? Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, and that's absolutely. A big Once that barrier has disappeared, yeah. in a, and it is a very English yeah. thing, I think. Once that barrier is down, people go, oh, right, in that case, how should I talk to you? How should yes. I talk to someone if they come to the When I got involved with Symphony, part of... I mean, I have to say Symphony have been absolutely incredible. Uh, and I didn't think we would... 
I didn't ever think probably it would get off the ground. When they approached me, I, I wrote a report of what I thought needed to be done, and I sort of did this pie-in-the-sky wish list sort of thing, this is what you should do, never thinking they would do it. And they have put everything that I said that they needed to do into action, including giving staff a quality training. If you're going to sell the products, you have to have a fully wheelchair-accessible showroom. It has to have accessible parking. It has to have accessible toilets. Staff have to be a quality trained, and they all have to be trained in accessible design by me, ongoing. Mm. I have to, I'm not have to, I want to work with the first, say, five, ten designs going through to make sure it goes smoothly. I want the designers, when the client, where they have a client, I will actually lead on that uh, and they can watch the way I speak to a, a client and the questions I ask and what I do. And through that way, you will learn more to become more comfortable with the client. Now, it seems, I, I, I find it so strange in 2020 mm. that we're even having to talk this way, to be honest. But, but again, it's, 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 it's when, you know, it's, it's when something is not prejudice, but it's just... The, well, it's the, lack of the thought, the, it's yeah, lack of the knowledge. It's fear of saying the wrong thing. Yeah. I'm not I mean, the someone. amount of wheelchair users' homes I go into that are being newly designed, I'm being brought in to do the kitchen, and they're using an architect who's never designed an accessible, inverted commas, properties before... The client stated I want a level threshold to get them from inside to out. And I'm sitting there looking at a one and a half, 15 mil drop. And when you're coming in the other way, that's just like wheeling into a brick wall. So, it's again, it's understanding that if a client says, this is important to me, it, it's not like, well, we can get it close, but whether the oven is at this height or that house doesn't really matter. Because by getting it 20 mil too high might be the difference because of their shoulder injury or rheumatoid arthritis in their shoulder. They physically can't get their hand up. To operate it, but it's the, it's the two fields uh, of it's the two fields of skill of being a, des- a designer in this area, I guess. One is the actual sitting at a computer or sitting at a desk yeah. and designing the thing, and the yeah. other is extracting the information, yes. getting the full brief from the client, and that's a, that is yeah. a skill in and in of yeah. itself that is as much about working on that as it is about understanding the products and how they work. And yes, uh, and and th- this is one of the things that I, I, you need to get across to designers. And I, and, I, and I have to say, I get frustrated. And if you look at my designs over the years, that a lot of them are the same because there is this process that there are certain things that work really well in mm. accessible design. For you, for instance, it doesn't matter what height your worktops are or what height your wall units are within reason. You'll be able to access them. It might not be quite so comfortable, mm. but you can do that. Whereas you could design the most beautiful-looking, stunning kitchen with curves and everything, but if the client can't, you know... So imagine the situation. I've taken something out of the oven. It's hot. I can't now walk over there and put it down. Mm-hmm. So if you've designed my hob on an island, you know, and the sink and everything else is on the other side, you've just designed me a kitchen that I cannot use. Mm. It's that level of basic understanding, uh, but equally trying to push the bounds of design because that's, that's one of the problems that's in our industry is that the manufacturers that do make accessible inverted commas kitchens, they look like something out of the 1970s. Yeah. And it's... And it, not the good 1970s. You know, it really is. It's, it's poor quality materials. There's no safety designed into it. There's no understanding of what is needed to make it accessible. Let's step through some of the actual practical bits yeah. and bobs here, right? Because we're here in your house. We're sitting yeah. right by your actual kitchen here. Use your kitchen as an example here of, yeah. of, of what you've done that would counteract what a normal, normal in inverted commas, yeah. kitchen or a normal kitchen designer yeah. would, would do here. So here's, here's the first tip. 
Don't use the word normal. <laughs> yeah. We, we refer to the, the word normal as the N-word yeah. in the disability movement. So you never, ever use the word normal because what's the opposite of normal? Yeah. Exactly. So we, we, we say standard. Right. Standard and non-standard. This is a standard kitchen. This is... My kitchen is a non-standard kitchen. If that's yeah, so I, I'm actually in my kitchen. I'm trying out th- new things for the first time. So, mm. and I'm actually before I sort of roll them out. Basic principles are, you know, you want to have the hob and the sink close together. And again, as soon as you start explaining why, so that you can get a saucepan, because the idea is that you don't want to move. You know, you need to move as little as possible between sink and hob. All all movement you want to try and reduce. You want to try and reduce bending as much as possible, overreaching as much much as possible. Here you you have a, a rise and fall top mm-hmm. here, but it's this is quite a special one. I haven't seen anything like it before. So talk us talk us through how that works. Yeah, what what makes this unique is we, uh, we've really pushed the boundaries. It's it's I think it is the largest rise and fall that you can do because you've got to think about weight. Again, designers might necessarily think about that sort of thing. They'll do a nice big rise and fall, and then the client will say, "I want granite." Well. Mm. You put a lump of granite on a rise and fall, and it's not going to last very long. Yeah. You know, literally, the, the mechanism will burn out, so or it physically won't be able to lift it. So that you've got those sort of practical issues. So it's working with materials that can be light enough, and then obviously the lighter the worktop, the bigger you can start making the frames. We've designed waterfall edges on them, so if you have spill, it stays on the worktop. It's Corian, isn't it? The whole, yes, it's yeah. Corian. I love, I love the product. To be mm. honest, it is. It allows you to do so much. I mean, I mean, there are so many advantages of using Corian. It's got the you, you can have your waterfall edges. You can obviously join without any trip hazards because a lot of disabled people won't carry things. We either pick up, put down, or we slide. So if you've got a worktop, uh, you know, with a join in it, you know, that could trip a cup of coffee or a glass up or something like that. You can get the sink made at any depth you like. Well, this is it. It's an incredibly shallow sink yeah. that you have as part of this. So talk us through the thought. Well, I mean, this is I'm I'm. I'm using it as a slop sink, just trying to see whether actually I can cope with using a very shallow uh, bowl sink mm-hmm. so that I can actually keep the worktop all at one level, at a lowered level when I'm using it. And, of course, then you, you can get underneath the sink as much yes. as you can get underneath the yeah. hole. Which yeah. then allows you to access wall units a lot more easily. What's interesting about this, and I guess this is a, a part of any of these kind of designs, there's, there's very bespoke elements like that that yeah. you know, are, are, are very particular. But there's an awful lot of very standard stuff in there that as you've appropriated or perhaps hasn't been designed for this purpose but is absolutely perfect for this yes. purpose so a lot of the blum internals and whatever are a big part yes. of that and that's a good thing you know it's wire work i mean it's just a simple thing like a pull out larder everyone knows what a pull out larder is but you want the mechanism so it's in the center the, ro- the running mechanism is in the center rather on one side because it, you, it takes less strength to pull it out from the centre than it does from one side, and it also means you can access both sides. And then if you throw in the pull-out larder that twists, it means you can access both sides without having to walk around it. So Because if you're an amputee, again, you're wanting to plant feet and do as little movement as possible. What's interesting is, and this is where the multi-generational aspect comes in, this is not necessarily about being in a wheelchair. This, if you're just really short, oh, you exactly, can't, you, know, you can't yeah. reach those cupboards. And equally, or very tall. Yeah. And again, to be able to have a worktop that goes up and down, and the more we sell it, then the price will come down. Yeah. Well, the more we design, the price will come down. And again, things like you've got the nef slide and hide yeah. here, which the door. When you, and as soon as I start saying that now, and people are in, people get into the mindset, they can suddenly see where the, yeah. why that's incredibly useful yes. as well. But that's not what it was designed for. No. 
Is that, I mean, Neff have got some fantastic accessible products. Uh, I mean, I love the fridges where all the drawers and everything pull out as well. But, I mean, the slide and high particularly. Uh, again, I'm, I'm writing an expert witness report on a, a project that's been designed and I'm being brought in to sort of, because the client can't use it, they specified the Neff oven, but they didn't specify the oven which can have the telescopic shelves. Mm. So if the designer had known, I mean, the telescopic shelves are just fantastic to be able to pull out and that they don't, you know, pull the full distance out of the oven and they don't tip. So what about other things that are very standard stuff? So, for example, are boiling water taps good or bad? Again, it depends what the impairment's for. Yeah. For the majority of disabled people, absolutely brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. I would have one if I could afford one. Because <laughs> <laughs> you haven't got to carry uh, the kettle yeah, around, yeah, or, yeah. No, they, they aren't there. They're, they're, they're brilliant. Yeah. But again, you've got to think about, you know, if the client's got learning difficulties, for instance, then is that safe? You know, you've got to, they've got to have the mental capacity to know that not to put their arm under the tap, which I have to say I did once. Mm, wow. Only once. <laughs> <laughs> but because again, if you think about a disabled person, if you're, say, using a st- an oven with a standard drop-down door that's at this height, my mm. arm, I'm coming at it at, yeah. at level, so my arm is an inch or two away from something that's 200 degrees centigrade. Yeah. As an ambulant person, your arm's coming in at like this, and you're, yeah. you're less likely to touch it. In the same way as if you're operating a hot water tap, your arm is coming in at this way, and potentially you could be putting your arm under the tap. Well, I have a thing, again, my mum has very bad arthritis, for mm-hmm. example, that hobs are built in a sort of four, four formation. Yeah which is absolutely daft if you think about it, because you've got to reach over something yeah. incredibly hot to yeah. pick up something incredibly hot. Yeah. Whereas actually if they were all in a row, it would be yes. a completely th- different thing. But it's just it's overcoming what are very well-established conventions. Yeah. That all ovens are that size, yeah. all hobs are designed like that, yeah. all units are 600 wide, and you know, everything is about standard depths and heights. Yeah. And a lot of this is about trying to encourage a much greater choice yes. so that designers can choose from yeah. from lots of different options. I mean, exactly. And one of my biggest bugbears at the moment that I'm having a real issue with is extractors. So go back four or five years, I had a, a really good range of probably about 15, 20 extractors from various manufacturers that I could use on a regular basis which had remote controls. Mm. One by one, they're all being taken out. So how does it, how is a wheelchair user or a disabled person supposed to reach an operating extractor if it's set at a standard height? And it's just like, why are all the manufacturers okay? So they're thinking of going over to Wi-Fi or how another form of operation. Mm. But there is still a huge market for a reasonably priced remote control extractor. That brings me nicely onto technology, actually, because I'm wondering. There's so much discussion about smart homes, smart, mm-hmm. particularly in the appliance market. It's very, yeah. very massive in that as well. But that seems to lend itself very well to everything we're talking about here, voice control in particular. Yeah. Is that the next big thing? Is that it, going to revolutionise it, it, it? It's happening. Yeah. yeah, it really is happening. There's, uh, there's lots of things going on in uh, this. I mean, I at the university, Johnny Gray organised a speaker that brought a food printer, and that I. To see a food printer working it was just it does it was incredible, absolutely incredible. I mean, she had it set up to print raspberries, wow. but she brought you have these little bottles of different flavouring. It's, it's the actual product yeah. itself; it's not just flavouring. It's it is mashed up banana. But anyway, so she she printed this raspberry, but it tasted and of banana, but it wasn't yellow. Yeah. It, it, it really does your head in. But that but that's a great one. But but more practically, things like I mean, Neff have just introduced. I keep saying Neff. 
uh, but they've introduced their voice-activated ovens. I'm sure there'll be other manufacturers already doing it or following suit. But for a disabled person to be able to, who has had to rely on PAs, personal assistants, to do everything in their oven, to give them the power to be able to actually say, turn my oven on, turn my oven up to 180 degrees, when will, you know, when will my dinner be ready? Uh, and to be able to have that level of control back is absolutely massive. I mean, what would be fantastic, which and I understand it's very difficult, is to try and make a hob work because of the safety aspects. Yes, but it will eventually. Yes. And extraction and lighting and so, all the other things yeah. that go along with it. Because I think one of the one of the hesitations people have had in this in in the kitchen market or just kitchen designs have had around mm-hmm. smart home is they can't really see the application. Yeah, they don't understand what what problem it's solving. But of course, you can instantly understand what yeah. problem these things are solving. See, that, that, that was the wonderful thing, always makes me, again, I'm just going to mention Neff, I promised yeah. for the last time. Neff's advertising for their uh, voice-activated oven, the, it's, it's wonderful. You've got these really beautiful young people down the bottom of the garden, the gar- it's getting dark, yeah. and their phones beep, and the oven is telling them their dinner's ready. Mm. Great, yeah. but how more empowering would that be if you had a disabled person being able to, you know, seeing a disabled person being given their independence by voice-activated oven or... Alexa, as is it Alexa or Google Home, they have the blind lady and she's yes. basically saying, Alexa, what's the weather like today? Yeah. And, it's, and, and, it's, again, and we are seeing more of this yeah. now coming in. And, and again, a lot of these products, I mean, this is the thing, I, like, I mean, I went to a, a big project in Park Lane and it was for the Uber rich mm. absolute cutting edge state of the art and i was going around it just look you know all these fantastic products thinking oh my god that would be so fantastic yeah. for a disabled person this, yeah. you could do xyz forget the fact that you don't even have to think about getting your clothes dry cleaned anymore mm. you know but you could apply that to do xyz and this is the wonderful thing technology can really help it is a massive market it is huge it is this huge. isn't a moral yeah. thing this is yeah. there's a massive market there area. is yeah Grey pound, ageing population, all, yes. everything, all these kind of catch-all terms that everyone uses. Yeah. But making products and kitchens, because it is a big part of the home, yeah. accessible to everybody yeah. and to be able to use by everybody, means everyone's making lots yeah. of money. Yes, exactly. And to, and to understand that. And again, I, I could never understand when I was trying to get the bigger manufacturers. I mean, I banged my head against the wall for 20... I got, this is all coming across as me being negative. <laughs> and I'm really not, honestly. Yeah, but you had your perspective uh, on it but, is yeah. unique, though. So for 25 years, I would try and get major manufacturers to think about accessibility and multi-generation mm. done and these sorts of things and bang my head against the brick wall. It is now finally happening, which is absolutely fantastic. But again, they do have to understand. But there are things that they, they don't have to do massive things. And again, for designing... And what a great sales tool, you know, when you're designing for somebody who's 55, 60, yes, they still might be fully able-bodied and not be thinking about disability, but are they still going to be in that situation in another 10, 15 years' time? Designing some of these features now, you've got a great sales tool, and they'll thank you in the long term. But there aren't many other Adam Thomases around, though, are there? Is that part of the problem? I believe not, no. So, but it's... But it's not rocket science. That's the thing. It's... It's good design. It is good design. Yeah. It's understanding ergonomics. It's understanding how people move and how people work. It's observing the clients. It's actually, rather than just getting the client to get a mood board together with colours and swatches and I like this sort mm-hmm. of feel and that, you're actually observing the clients and watching the way they work and the way they move and knowing, again, what questions to ask. 
And that's that's ninety percent of the problem. It not the problem, but the solution rather. That if you actually ask the right questions, you 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 should be able to do a much better design. But equally, disabled people won't know a lot of the stuff themselves. So it, it's having that level of understanding they're, they're as not well. Not the kitchen every week. Yeah, yeah. So well, let, let's finish up here with with the work that you're doing with Books Uni mm-hmm. because that is a big part of, of of the future, isn't it? And that is yeah. a, 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 it's very important that that what your expertise is a big part of what that course is all about. Thank so what's you. it like working with those students? I, honestly, it's brilliant. Well, well I, love, I love working with all the staff as well and meeting the staff because they come from a huge sway across our industry. Mm. Some aren't actually in the industry but want to get into it, so they've got m- many different levels of skills. But the thing that really excites me is they all have a passion for multi-generational accessible design uh, and it's getting that understanding. And once you have it, you don't lose it. But, but it's it, weaved into every part of that curriculum, it is. isn't it? Yeah. It is. Yes, it is. The great thing is that when these students, as they advance their careers, it will spread, you know, and they will then pass it on to the next generation, next generation. And it becomes weaved into every yes, part of the exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, look, Adam, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you very much for, for inviting us into your very nice house. Thank you. Uh, and I really appreciate the time. So thank you. That's it for this special episode. There's so much in that conversation to unpick and Adam's perspective on design and the wider market is so insightful, candid and inspiring. So huge thanks to him for sparing us his time and it's well worth a repeat of that interview, I think. Remember to subscribe to the KBB Review podcast in your podcast app of choice by searching KBB Review or one word. See you next time. <laughs>